On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, a hamster who is buying and selling cryptocurrency, a new photo of the Loch Ness Monster, and John Gallagher Jr. joins us. He was part of the original Broadway cast of Spring Awakening, and HBO has a new documentary about it. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob and Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. That's Sue Kalinsky. It is Wednesday, May the 4th. Hey, it's May the 4th. May the 4th be with you? Exactly. It's Star Wars Day. Star <laughs> Wars Day. Uh, and it's uh, 9 a.m. and we both do our best work at 9 a.m. in the at morning. N- huh? At night. At night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm I'm still a little jet laggy from my trip, but are uh, you? Well, that's understandable. That's yeah. understandable. You will hear at some. You you'll hear pounding because next to my studio they are building some sort of house or remodel or something like that. You will hear at some point my housekeeper come in and my dogs lose their shit. So all that stuff is coming up in the next few minutes so can't, make sure can't, you stay, can't wait can't stay wait tuned. stay tuned now we got a great guest today but you brought some stuff to the table what do you got um i don't know if you heard about this guy um he's a hamster named mr gox no i do not know of mr gox and he's been trading crypto and beating the stock market get out of here well that's what they say he's live streaming on on twitch he plays, you know, with cryptocurrency. He's up 20% on his initial investment, which was, uh, it started at $381. So how does the hamster play the market? Okay. He apparently lives in Germany. Okay. And where where a currently anonymous human business partner. He has a human business partner. Okay. Uh, well, of course he does. Uh, keeps up maintenance of his office. So in there's a treadmill and a tunnel that he scurries down to buy a tunnel for, um, for sale. There's two cameras, a Tesla emblem, a desk with miniature computers, and he's got a view. He's got a killer view of a cityscape. And I guess he just goes on the treadmill and uh, does what a hamster does. And for some reason, it's working in his favor. But how do you know that the hamster, I believe it's Mr. Spox. I want to address him appropriately. Gox, Gox, Mr. Gox. Dr. Gox, Mr. Gox. How does he actually choose to buy, right? In other other words, somebody, he obviously is a helper. Is he like choosing one piece of... uh, of kibble versus another, or how is he deciding whether to buy or sell? And, and, and what does he actually do? Well, you know, they've, they've left out a lot. 
quotes here in this piece because they they don't know either. But I don't know. Like I'm I'm kind of like a moron when it comes to the stock market and, yeah. and Bitcoin and all this stuff. And yeah. so it says that the tokens. The tokens that Mr. Gox buys and sells. Um, he's got positions in Bitcoin, Doge, D-O-G-E. Dogecoin, yeah. Dogecoin, That's Ethereum. That's the big Elon Musk thing. Oh, okay. Ethereum is a big uh, crypto, yeah. Okay, and Polkadot. Okay, I don't know that one, but there are many cryptocurrencies. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how he actually does this. Um. Oh, this is so funny. It says he buys and sells at, um, well, this is European. So I, I don't know what the symbol is. Uh, at, Euros. No, well, it's a C and then, and then the number 20 next to it. So uh, yeah, that's the, the old C20. I have no idea. Okay. And it's locked up at using tunnels for 20 seconds. Then after he's running through them. So he buys and sells at these, at, at, I guess it's $381 incre- dollars increments and is locked out of using the tunnels for 20 seconds after he's running through them. This prevents the temperamental hamster from immediately <laughs> selling what he's just bought. So he uh, gets he's a winning. little, p- he's winning, but he gets a little pissy when he can't <laughs> run through his tunnels. run through the tunnels the way yeah. uh, he w- would like to, which may, you know, incur more money. Um, it's, you know what it is to me when, when they, when somebody has a pet yeah. or, or is around an animal and they're doing human things, like remember years ago there, um, and maybe it's still happening. There were gorillas that actually painted. Yeah, I do selling. remember that. Yeah, sure. Okay. So it was Coco and, and, uh, and another gorilla named Michael. And I'm thinking like, if you had one of their paintings in your house, somebody comes in and says, oh my God, that painting, it's beautiful. And it's like, it's an original Coco. And it's like, you, you have, what, what's that? And it's like, you don't know who Coco is. It's like having a, like a Basquat in your house or something. It's like a Warhol, exactly. <laughs> I know. It's like, you have an original and that, and that's, and that would be like the total douchey, you know, rich person who's like, <laughs> You don't know what an original Coco is. <laughs> well, that's an interesting and sort of uh, non-description. I would love to know how Mr. Gox actually trades the stock or when. Obviously, he's not trading the stock. But- Somebody else is trading the stock. Maybe he runs into a certain tunnel that's buy. He runs into a different tunnel that sells, something like that. I I kind of feel like um, they didn't put that down <laughs> because he doesn't really he's not he's really not doing, actually he's not I'm, really doing anything. It's not actually this is this yeah. to them is just kind of a fun story spinning in a wheel. Yeah, I like that. I like, send me that story because I want to use that on Mason in Ireland. That's just the kind of stupidity we love. All righty. So I was reading about um, you follow the Loch Ness, not the Loch Ness monster. Oh, it's situation. funny you say that. You know, my very first trip to Europe. You know, there there was always a name. My very first trip to Europe was specifically to go to Loch Ness. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I took I flew into Gatwick. I rented a car. I drove to uh, Inverness, which is where Loch Ness is. Um, it went out on a boat. Um, everybody, everybody's laughing. Oh, laugh this monster life. And yet everybody's got their camera like ready just, just in case. So yeah, I, I, I do know, uh, about the Loch Ness experience. So what, what, uh, what's going on with Nessie? 
with Nessie. Well, apparently, um, just recently, a couple was on vacation in the Scottish Highlands, and they've recorded the fourth alleged sighting of the year. And apparently, they say that this one, they're calling this one, genuinely inexplicable. Really? So they have video of it. And, it, you know, it's so obscured. Like, you see, like, a shadow. You know, it's like... And, and anyway, you know, they said that the first sighting was in May of 1933. Okay. They don't say Loch Ness monsters like there's a lot of them. There's apparently only one of them. So do you mean like how what's the lifespan of a Loch Ness monster? They, this was the first sighting was in 1933. OK, so supposedly I mean, the, and I'm looking at the picture now. That's a pretty good one right there. That's a pretty good picture of the Loch Ness Monster. I don't know what else that could be. So supposedly there's, so a lock is very, very deep. Okay. Right. right. So there's lots of, lots of room in a lock straight down. Um, and the idea is, I think that there's a, a family of, of Loch Ness Monsters there that are breeding and all that kind of stuff. Now, this is a good picture. I, I think, I think that looks real to me. Now, if they have, like, like, how come they just can't get it? Well, they've sent down submarines. Mm -hmm. And apparently one of the other features of a lock is that they are very, very cloudy and it's hard to see through the water and that kind of stuff. So they sent down a submarine, could not find Nessie. But this is actually a pretty good photo of of uh, Nessie. That is the best one I've seen in a long time. Do you not believe in the Loch Ness Monster? Not really. Oh, come on. Believe in something, Sue. <laughs> Believe. It's like, uh, like sea. What, what, what are those things we used to buy when we were kids? The sea monkeys? Sea monkeys. Now, does anybody do? I uh, used to get them at the back of like my comic books. There were little ads for sea monkeys. Right. And they'd send you the sea monkeys. And there'd be a picture on the package of like a monkey wearing a little crown and holding a pitchfork or whatever the hell the monkey's Moving doing. Right? <laughs> Something like that. And so uh, you put the, uh, the, uh, the powder in water. And apparently these are brine shrimp that once they get uh, water on, they, they turn into shrimp and they do swim around a little bit and that kind of stuff. At no point does it look like a monkey, uh, sea monkey with a crown and a pitchfork. At no point did it ever no. live up to my expectations. No, it never came with accessories. No, never did. Never <laughs> did. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think there's stuff we don't understand. <laughs> Obviously, me, there's a lot of stuff I don't there's understand. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, but bizarre. no, the Loch Ness Monster, I'll, I'll buy stock on that. If I was uh, Mr. Uh, gotcha, I would probably buy stock on the Loch Ness Monster. What was the stock guy's name? Mr. Gox? Mr. Gox, G-O-X-X. G-O-X-X. So we got uh, Gox and Nessie today. All right. I like that. I like that. To go one more? Uh, yeah. Well, there's, I'm trying to think which one is the best one to do. One of them is kind of gross, but. Don't do the gross one. I won't I'm do not the gross the one. I'm not. not the it's too early for gross, It's right? too early. Yeah, I don't want okay. gross. Okay, so there's a, a London actress named Abby Bella, and she claims that she fell for an alien after it swept her into its UFO. Mm. Okay. Okay. So she was saying that um, she was bored by the pandemic okay. and unimpressed by the uh, offerings on Earth. <laughs> and uh, 
she apparently she joked online that she wanted an alien to abduct her. And lo and behold, it wow, did it did. Yes. And um, and she said one night she heard a voice in her dream commanding her to wait in the usual spot. <laughs> the usual spot. Does she always meet aliens? It was next to her window. So, the, so she sat at her window yeah. the next evening. And as she began to fall asleep, a flying saucer swept into view. Mm-hmm. And uh, before she knew it, she wasn't in her bedroom any longer. Wow. There was a bright green beam that transported her in. So she, um, yeah, so she said that it was tall and slender. Mm, nice. And uh, uh, it had like, a, you know, <laughs> it's like what you always big see. Eyes. It's, big it's, eyes. It's a, yeah. a saucer-shaped black eyes. And, um, and then she said that uh, she would kind of felt very connected. And she described like she was being in love. Really? She fell and in love. She, she said, I didn't get his name, but I felt exactly the same. And then it, and then she said something like, uh, excuse me, did you say your name was Zortex? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I didn't get your name. Like she's talking to him and it's like, uh, excuse me? Yeah. Um, creature? <laughs> right, right. Uh, alien? Um, can I call you alien or is that insulting? <laughs> um, so then, oh, yeah, she said she wasn't sure. She wanted to leave planet Earth and never look back. And I'm like, Bella, <laughs> you left planet Earth. Believe me, <laughs> you left planet Earth. So she's like had this relationship with this with this with alien. This alien. Yeah. Yeah. According and, to her. And I love when people say this kind of stuff. Um, you know, some might be squeamish about Earthling alien relationships, but they just haven't considered interspecies dating. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, we all need to be more open-minded about this, probably. Yes. And she hopes to be a pioneer in the field and normalize it. Um, <laughs> normalize I don't know. She's kind of a, I think she's kind of a pioneer. So what do you field. think of this idea of alien abductions? Um, I, I I don't know. I I know, you know, we've talked about the whole alien thing a lot. Yeah, which I am a huge believer. You know, I said there are billions of planets and billions of universes with billions of planets and all that stuff. I don't know. It's just so Twilight Zone to me. I just have a really hard time believing it. But if like a really good friend of mine told me that they were abducted by an alien... I would believe them because they're a really good friend. They're a really good friend. Sure. Unless, unless it was someone that like smoked way too much pot and like ate acid. Yes. Yes. See, here's the thing. I, everybody said, so supposedly people have been abducted for years and years and they're having scientific experiments. We're really simple. I think they would only need one. If they've got the technology to fly here and to beam somebody up, they've got to just look at one person and say, okay. We get it. We understand how this being works. I don't understand the process of, you know, I, I, it sounds it sounds delusional to me. I mean, I understand people. I, I think there are beings out there that we don't understand somewhere. I just don't think they're bothering with us. Yeah. We're not that I, interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, they are so advanced, I would think, that... Uh, they laugh at us. They laugh at us. Yeah. It's like we'd be beneath them. Like, I don't think an alien would ever want to be in a relationship no, with uh, an earthling. <laughs> no, exactly. Stating down. It, totally. 
Totally. <laughs> like the other aliens would be like, what are you doing with them? What are you doing with her? You know, it's yeah. like, it's, it's so, yeah, it's, it's totally beneath you. Yeah. But I, I do believe now I, I established, do you believe in life elsewhere? I think there can be, you know, I mean, they, I mean, the more I, I hear about, oh, there's water here. Or, you know, when you hear of, 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 uh, of properties that would exude life somewhere. Sure. You know, it kind of makes it seem like maybe there, there can be something living somewhere else. Um, but I don't know. I mean, so I, I, I think I might have mentioned this on the show. I read a book called, uh, it's by Richard Powers. It was called Bewilderment. And it was about an astrophysicist, and he kept talking about the fact that there are billions of inhabitable planets in our galaxy, and then there are billions of galaxies beyond that. How can there not be life out there? When I yeah. put it that way, do you believe? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a possibility. I think there's a possibility. Yeah, I'm not but I, I don't think this it. poor actress from I believe she's acting this uh, performing yeah, the story he, of the alien dating. She's just looking for attention. Yeah, and she is. I guess she just can't. She just can't get a date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. I mean, she's saying that she's bored, but I just think it's not happening. Swiping right does not work for her. Um, all right. So uh, I'm excited about this. Our guest today has starred in films like Short Term 12 and 10 Cloverfield Lane. On television, he has starred in Olive Kittredge and The Newsroom, but he is best known for his role as Moritz in the landmark musical Spring Awakening, and he is featured in the new documentary Spring Awakening, Those You've Known, which is streaming now on HBO Max. Tony winner John Gallagher Jr. joins us. John, thank you so much for doing this. It is my 100% pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I am a huge fan of Spring Awakening. I saw you in the original cast. I think it must have been summer of 2007 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater on Broadway. It was an incredible experience. I've never seen anything like it before. Never saw anything like it since. Um, how would you, if, if somebody's not seen the show, how would you describe the, the story? You know, looking back on it, it's a wonder that we got it made because trying to describe it even now that it's existed for 15 years is difficult. <laughs> it's hard to kind of, you know, uh, uh, distill it down to a kind of easy soundbite. But in a nutshell, uh, it's a it's a musical that uses rock and roll music, uh, despite the fact that it takes place in the uh, early 1900s in a small provincial German town where a group of school children are struggling to find their way through uh, adolescence without much guidance from their parents or the community at large. Um, so it, it's almost like a classic play. But when the music's roll, when the music rolls in, uh, time kind of stops, and these kids pull out microphones and become kind of rock stars. And the songs take place kind of in their heads, where they're able to access their hidden fears and dreams and desires. 
You couldn't I fit that on a poster. No, but. no, it's, it's, <laughs> that's that's tough in a pitch meeting. Exactly. That's exactly. that's amazing. It is really amazing. Do the elevator it. pitch for Spring Awakening. <laughs> well, you'd have to have on the bottom, you know, an arrow over. You know, yes. turn the page over. Yes, and please, okay, look at this part two. <laughs> you know, I didn't see it um, back in the day. I saw it for the first time around four or five years ago. My uh, friend's son. Oh, wow. Was in a version of it out here in the, some theater in Malibu. And oh, I knew goodness. nothing. I knew nothing about it. So here I am seeing her son, who was around 15 years old, doing a show that is a pretty serious subject matter for, for a young adult. What did your parents think when you got this part and then saw it? Yeah, I might, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky, uh, in that my parents, my, my whole life, I started acting really young when I was about 15. Uh, and my parents have been, uh, so supportive, um, and so completely behind me. And, um, they were thrilled. I mean, they were over the moon. I think they were just so excited that, um, that I was doing a musical. I'd never done a musical before. And so I think they loved that. They were really into the idea of that. Um, and you know, they were, they were tough. They didn't flinch at the intensity of the subject matter in, in ways that I thought that they might, when they first came to see it, I think they ended up seeing it like, Oh my, I think my mom saw it like 30 sometimes on Broadway. I mean, mm. she came back over and over again. It was just so exciting. Um, cause we started rather humbly. We started off Broadway at a really small theater before we moved to Broadway. And so it was a little bit of a Cinderella story. We couldn't believe that we went from being this small little downtown kind of arty show to the big, giant, phenomenal blockbuster on Broadway. Um, so we were all just kind of living it up. But yeah, I mean, for people that don't know, what's amazing about the original play is that it tackles timeless issues of youth in a very, very frank uh, and um gutsy manner. Um, you have characters that are being sexually abused, uh, characters that are struggling with intense anxiety and depression, um, characters that are struggling to find their way into uh, a coming of age and experiencing sex for the first time without having any guidance or any, any, any help um, from their teachers or from their parents. And so um, it's, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's it's strange almost in a way to think that it ended up being this big blockbuster because if you were to look at it from afar you might look at some of the subject matter and think well, how do you make a two-hour show about that that sends people off you know into the night feeling like there's hope <laughs> in yeah. humanity but you know somehow um we managed to, to uh through the music and through um the original text find that there is a lot of hope in humanity in the end of the show despite the kind of tough road that you have to take to get there so uh, it, it, the documentary and documentaries, uh, fantastic. I absolutely, uh, love it. Spring Awakening, those you've known, which is uh, streaming now on HBO Max. Uh, it says that you were a little older than Leah Michelle and Jonathan Groff, uh, were when they started. How, what was the age difference between you so guys? I did the show when I, when I first got involved, it was 2005 and I did a, a, a workshop and I was 20 years old and I did the show from 20 to 23 over a series of three years of development and, an off-Broadway run. And when I met Leah, and she's a few years younger than me, I want to say she was maybe, I was about 20 and I think she was 17 mm -hmm. or 18, but she'd been playing that role in all of the workshops and developmental labs. She'd been already playing it for like five or six years before I came on board. So she had that character just like dialed in and figured out. And then Jonathan's only like a year or two younger than me, I think as well. 
Um, but I, I, I think I somehow, um, uh, j just through luck and happenstance was, was looked to as one of the kind of senior players. Cause I'd been, you know, been, I, I, it was my second Broadway show. I'd been acting for a little while. So I was considered seasoned, uh, in comparison hmm. to a lot of our younger cast members. And that is no longer the case. I mean, everybody has gone on to do such incredible work. Um, and it all started there in that show. So 15 years later, you, you reunite with the original cast singing the same songs, looking at them 15 years older. Um, what was the same and what was different? That's a great question. Um, and that that's really truly how it all felt, uh, was that it felt like a million years had passed and it felt like a second, you know, had passed hmm. in, in the time that it took from my last show, which was uh, um, the very tail end of 2007, and so I hadn't sung these songs or really been in the same room with all of these people in 15 years. It had been such a long time. Um, I was afraid that I, it wouldn't come back to me, that it, it wouldn't be in my bones, that I'd have a hard time with the songs. I didn't know how my voice had evolved in the years since I'd sung those songs. And I, you know, I credit, honestly, I credit Leah a lot. And I always have because uh, she has one of the hardest tasks in Spring Awakening not just because of the intensity and the, the dramatic emotional arc of her character that she plays, but she starts the show. She comes out and gets up on a chair and sings this very plaintive, stripped-down ballad, this song, Mama Who Bore Me. And I always would look to her, and I always think sometimes the people that have it hardest in these shows are the people that have to come out and start it. Mm -hmm. uh, because they set the tone and they're introducing the audience to the, okay, here's the rules of the show. Here is how the night is going to go. Um, and Leah always did that. So with such courage and, uh, and grace. And I feel like when we got into the rehearsal room uh, to do this reunion concert back in November, it all just like it did back in 2007 started with Leah. And that was the first song we sang. And, she did it and it's in the documentary they yeah, film her yeah. singing it for the first time and I mean, you can just see that we're all <laughs> grinning ear to ear and jonathan groff is crying and uh it was incredibly intense but she just did it again she set the tone and she set the stage and i feel like she gave us all permission to to go for it you know it's always been kind of that that song in that moment with leah's kind of the green light of the show and from there on out it was like we just hit the ground running and everybody mm -hmm. it all came flooding back to us so Spring Awakening won eight Tony Awards. You you won the Tony for Best uh, Featured Actor, which, you know, had yeah, to be an yeah. amazing night. But there were moments there, uh, and it's in the documentary, where you felt like you'd moved off Broadway to Broadway, and there were a lot of empty seats prior to the Tony Awards. Were there moments that you thought, uh, we're not, we're not going to make it? You know, it's so funny because watching the documentary and I told this to my castmates, you know, last week at the premiere that um, I don't know if I'm suffering some sort of memory issue uh, as I'm aging or if I was just so distracted by the excitement of being on Broadway. But I barely remember like a struggle to hmm. sell tickets. Um, maybe it's because I just had my head down and I was just kind of like, okay, we got to do the work. We got to go out there. We got to keep plugging away. We got to do the show. Um, I remember definitely nights where there were maybe like half houses where it was like, Ooh, okay. That doesn't look great. 
But I think, Mm. I don't think I was ever let in on any like genuine jeopardy that the production might've been in. You know, I, I I never felt we were going to close. I was scared of it. I thought, if this doesn't, if this doesn't work and if we don't get like, you know, really smashing reviews, there's a good chance they might pull the plug on this show before we get into the award season. But once we got into the kind of winter months, I remember the reviews were so good and the press was starting to add up. Um, and I was just so flabbergasted to be on Broadway that I think I, I ignored any drama that might have been waiting in the wings in terms of the, the uh, condition of the production. So watching that part of the documentary is funny because it's legitimate. I mean, you can see the terror still in like Duncan Cheek's eyes as he's talking about how the show was this close to closing. And I was sitting there in the theater watching it like, oh, it's a good thing nobody told me that. (laughs) I probably didn't need to know. I didn't need to have that in my head. But yeah, I don't really remember that. I mostly just, my memories are mostly just, you know, how high octane, super duper fun it was to be on Broadway uh, in a show that everybody was, you know, lining up around the block to see. You know, it's just, it's a gift when that happens because it doesn't happen all the time with theater as we know. So there were a lot of personal stories um, that that the actors today revealed about themselves. Um, and some of them were kind of mirrored what was going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. Like one of the one of the characters, um, one of the actors talked about how she was molested when she was a child. Yeah. He talked about anxiety and depression. Um, what what did, did you know these things? during the the um during the run of the show you know i think i i suspected you know i struggled uh in school you know just as much as my character and the main difference uh between me and my character and i often think about this is that um you know my character moritz is um really struggling to keep his grades up he's completely just paralyzed uh, at you know at the the act by the act of having to go through puberty is just terrifying for him. And he has no one to hold his hand through it and tell him that it's normal and it's human and it's going to be okay. And he has these incredibly strict parents and his father, this abusive father who, um, you know, is always threatening to disown him and, and kind of give up on him should he not meet a certain standard or an expectation. And I just think I'm so blessed because I had all of the struggles of my character growing up, um, but without that pressure and without the expectation, I had loving, supportive parents. And I ended up, um, you know, I ended up struggling really, really hard in school, but still finding this career in the arts. And, you know, Spring Awakening was a a total salvation and, uh, and kind of a validation that, oh, it was okay that I struggled so hard through those years because now I've come out on the other end of it with this, you know, very, very lucky career uh, in in the theater. And it wasn't lost on me that what I was playing really mirrored my own experience other than the deviation that I had love and support and my character didn't. And we see, you know, how tragically it ends for my character without that love and support. He ends up taking his own life as a, as a result of it. So I knew that I felt all of those things, but I think it wasn't until, you know, we went back and looked at the show that I really just realized how fortunate my story was when you prop it, prop it up next to the story of my character. It's, it's staggering to me now um, how lucky I was and to have the resources to be able to go through a hard time um, and still be propped up by my loved ones. 
I watched the documentary, remembered all the music, all the music came back to me, uh, bitch of living and totally fucked. And, uh, you have that great song. One of my favorite songs in the show is I don't do sadness, which is such in the way the songs overlap. I like totally, totally dig that. But you mentioned it, your character, um, commits suicide every night during this show and you did it for a number of years. What, what is that like? And, and does that take a toll on you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the funny thing about theater uh, is that it's, it is so repetitive. You know, you're doing, you're telling the same story every night, you're going through the same motions, uh, the same emotions as well. And, you know, it's funny because there will be certain nights and I just went through this as well. I just did my third show with Michael Mayer who directed Spring Awakening. Um, and Michael always gives me, I don't know if it's, if he has it out for me or something, or if he wants to challenge <laughs> me, but he always gives me the most intense, emotionally distraught characters. Um, and it, it's a, it, it's a big ask. You have to go through it and you have to live it to a certain extent every night. And the weird thing about acting is that, you know, uh, your brain might know, Oh, this isn't real, but there's no denying that certain parts of your body, you know, when you force it and shock it into you know, a super adrenalized situation, parts of your body are going to think it's really happening and that you're really going through it. So it does, you know, it adds up. It does definitely have to go somewhere and it does take a toll. And I I describe it briefly in the documentary, but, you know, there would be some nights where I'd come off stage after having performed the suicide scene and uh, I'd run up to my dressing room and eat candy, you know, and hang out and, uh, you know, scroll on my flip phone because there weren't iPhones yet in 2000. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but um, and I wouldn't take on the burden of what I had just kind of performed. And then other nights, for whatever reason, maybe I'd had a rough day or it reminded me of how delicate we all are. I would come off from that scene and totally have a breakdown. And I feel like that would happen like once a month. So for the most part, I would get through it and know as an actor and as a professional that it's just a practical thing. You're, you're going out on stage, you're performing, you're pretending, and then you can kind of come off stage and get back into your normal life. But definitely there are some nights where it, it adds up and there's no escaping or denying that, you know, you just went through a, a super intense and emotional thing out on stage. Yeah. And the documentary, um, apparently a lot of um, fans who, you know, it resonated with a lot of fans, you know, specifically what you were going through. Your oh, character. absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you got letters, you know, um, and people were saying, you know, because of your character, because of this play, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, God, what did that feel like? I mean, incredible because, you know, if you're lucky um, as an actor, y- you, you, you fall into some shows that have success or they run for a while, or maybe you get some accolades and some awards, but the real gift is when you get to make a difference because that doesn't always happen. You don't always get into a show that has this kind of emotional purity and this kind of universality. And uh, to be able to realize that just because you went out on stage for several hours every night that you potentially maybe saved someone's life in an indirect manner. I mean, that's a, a, a humbling thing to process. And, uh, and I just think speaks volumes to the, just the timelessness of this piece that it was written years ago, you know, it was written in the early 1900s. It was banned for a long time because of the Frank depiction of, mm. uh, of, of, of the, of the plot and the subject material. Um, and that here we are 
2022 and it is having the exact same effect and the same type of impact on young people that experience. I mean, I mean, that's not to be too, uh, too cheesy about it all, but I mean, that's the magic of art it really at the end of the day is when it can, it, when it can reach out beyond the parameters of, of its form and make a genuine kind of tangible difference in people's lives. It's incredible. You know, you also, I, did you originate the role of Johnny in uh, American Idiot? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. That was my follow-up to Spring Awakening. And it almost seems like the shows fit together in this kind of linear, it's like from troubled teenagers to lost 20-year-olds. Do you see that sort of? Absolutely. I was just kind of, it's funny, I was just teasing Michael Mayer because he directed, I've only done three musicals in my life and they were all three directed by Michael Mayer, starting with Spring Awakening and then from Spring Awakening, he asked me to uh, to play the lead in uh, Green Day's American Idiot, which was his follow up to Spring Awakening. And I said yes, automatically, because that was a no brainer. Uh, that was so exciting. And then I've just done my third show with Michael, which is a musical based on the songs of the Avett brothers. And um, all three characters are, like I said, just twisted up in knots. They are completely lost souls. Uh, of three very different generations. And I was teasing Michael. I was like, gosh, you know, I'm going to start calling the three shows that we do together the trilogy of torture because yeah. these characters are just uh, relentlessly tortured by their demons and, and and own personal issues. And yeah, it wasn't lost on me that, you know, I, it felt like American Idiot was the next step forward was that, okay, so you survive your adolescence, you get into your early 20s, you survive that too. What then, you know, and that particular kind of quarter life crisis that happens when you realize that you're old enough to have made a difference and you still feel like you're absolutely just lost in some alley shuffling your feet. So there definitely is a kinship between those two characters. You guys, you, Leah, and uh, Jonathan did something so cool. After your last show, you snuck in, you stayed in the theater and slept overnight. Yeah. Now, how long did, did, did that secret last before anybody found out about it? So the first people to find out about it um, was the cleaning crew that comes to the theater every morning. They get there around 7 or 8 a.m., I think. Um, they're let in by the doorman and they go up and just kind of do a quick clean of all the dressing rooms and clean up the theater. Um, and because we went into the theater overnight, we were quite literally locked in because they locked the doors from the outside on their way out. So we knew getting into it that our sleepover plan might be a little controversial because we couldn't hide that we were there. Once we were in there, we knew someone was going to find us. And sure enough, we were all sleeping in sleeping bags on the floor of Leah Michelle's dressing room, the three of us. And we had passed out. We'd, we'd stayed up as late as we could. And we were drinking booze and watching, you know, watching movies on Leah's computer and, and exploring the theater and getting into all sorts of trouble. And then we finally fell asleep. And then I remember just hearing a key in the door to the dressing room and it opened and there were some of the cleaning crew from the theater that were there. And uh, I think Leah just said, surprise. Um, <laughs> and we came downstairs and kind of did a walk of shame out of the theater. And we passed by our doorman 
And he was like, oh my God, you guys are sneaky. I had no idea that you were in there. And we, we, we couldn't hide it much longer after that word started to, to travel and everybody was talking and it was like a game of telephone. And we went home and slept for like, you know, six or seven hours and then came back and did the show that night. Um, and so when we came back to do the show, um, you know, we had a, this look in our eye, a, a, a sheepish look that we knew we had done something a little risky, but I think we earned the the respect of our castmates. I think they were, they were pretty impressed that we had gotten away with it. So I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin fan. And oh, nice. uh, so, and, and I think the newsroom is like a criminally underrated show. I love that show so much. Uh, what's it like to work with Aaron Sorkin and, and like get those words on, on the page? Oh, it's wild. I mean, it's almost like doing a musical, to be honest with you, because he writes with a certain rhythm and a musicality and there's a pace to it. And um, you, you, you have to kind of, you have to really be anchored to the dialogue. Uh, it, it's written in such a manner where it's not really forgiving. And, you know, sometimes you roll up to a set and the writer or the director might be like, oh, you can paraphrase if you think of a better way to say it, if you want to improvise go for it. That's certainly not the case on an Aaron Sorkin set. You know, you've got to like follow uh, what he has written uh, in, in the script to a T because honestly he knows best and it does start to fall apart if you tweak it or play with it because he's written it out, you know, within an inch of its life. It's very specific. It's very deliberate. He's labored over it and thought, you know, long and hard about it. And I always just found that if you just plug yourself into the dialogue and you, w without being robotic, but if you just kind of pace it up and think of it as like a, a, a fast musical number, and if you just kind of plow through to the end of it, almost as if you were singing a song, it often gets the job done. Um, so there's a weird kind of overlap between doing musical theater and doing Aaron Sorkin. Not to say that you you could you can uh, excel at one and not the other. You know, there's plenty of actors that haven't done musicals that have just you know, nailed the Sorkin dialogue, but I, I found it to be a, a little similar, but it's just, it's just fun. It really is. It's like a, it's a little bit like I used to say, it's almost like if, you know, if you stumbled into the Rolling Stones rehearsal room and it's a strange analogy, but if, you know, you stumbled into the Rolling Stones rehearsal room and Keith Richards was like, Hey man, here, just, here's, just take my, take my Les Paul here and, uh, and, and just play this start me up riff real quick, you know? It's a little bit like that with Sorkin. You walk onto a Sorkin script set, he gives you the script and you get to say the kind of iconic dialogue that he is so known for. Um, it just feels like you've been, you know, given the, the, the keys to the kingdom as an actor. It's so how hard exciting. is it to do a, an Aaron Sorkin walk and talk? Um, I, always, I always thought they were kind of fun. Uh, I, I, some people, like we, some people, some of the actors on set would dread them. Yeah. Uh, but I would just think, oh my gosh, this, I can't believe we get to do one. I mean, this is, these are legendary, you know, <laughs> I, I would always just feel super lucky getting to do them. Yeah. I, I can imagine getting that part was, uh, was probably. Oh, I was so, yeah, I was thrilled. I was so, yeah. so excited. I was doing a play at the time in New York and I really didn't think I was going to get it. I was really surprised to get the offer and, you know, it was to totally life altering. I had never done 
regular work on television before until that. And it was super informative. Well, listen, I am uh, so excited to get you on the show. I'm an enormous fan. Uh, clearly, we love. I, I love the original show, love Spring Awakening, and love the new documentary, Spring Awakening, Those You've Known. It is streaming now on HBO Max. John, thank you for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. There you have it, John Gallagher. You know, every time we have a Broadway person on, you know what my first thought is, Sue. Oh, God, I'm so glad that you didn't say anything. No, I, I just, I wish. I mean, part of me thinks in an alternate universe, um, in the multiverse, there's a universe where I'm a Broadway actor. <laughs> there's, there's a, there is a universe where I ended up on Broadway. Don't you think that universe exists out there somewhere? I think in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear another song. I, I, a song besides I've Grown Accustomed to Your Face, which is yes. my landmark that's, achievement. Well, that's your signature. That's your that signature. Is, yeah, exactly, I know. Exactly. But there were other songs in the show, right? I mean, that Sure, there were. It's just this, that's the big one. That's, that's the, the big, big one. one. Uh, wouldn't it be cool to, you know, be one of those uh, actors who gets to stand up in their chair and yell, it's the bitch of living. Oh, my God. What, it, it, was, it just was so much fun. And just thinking how young they were. Yeah, I know. And, and, and they were, they were rock stars. I mean, they had gap ads, um, you know, people just swooned over them at the stage door, um, you know, to be that age and be in something so cool. And not only was it cool, but it was something that was so deep and meaningful. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't just, Oh, I'm in a play. I mean, it was, it was something that really resonated with people and um, it was, it was just triumphant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing that you, we're it's funny. We're talking about phone booth pitch. There is no phone booth pitch for spring awake. I mean, I it's, there's never been anything like it. Um, you know, it's late 18th century teenagers dealing with anxiety and depression and, and uh, and suicide and all that. So, I mean, there's just never been anything like that. And I I remember just walking out of the theater, being blown away by it. Blown and away. And also, and also hearing what the inspiration was. I mean, you know, Sater, the the writer, said that it was Columbine that inspired yeah. him to write this. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you get a chance, go look at this documentary. It's it's fantastic. Even if you haven't seen the show, totally watch the document. I, the one thing I thought about too, is when I was watching the documentary is people coming together after 15 years, because, you know, I've got that thing coming up where I'm seeing uh, my fraternity brothers who I've not seen in 35 years. Hmm. Um, and we've rented a house and we're going to go live in this house for uh, a weekend, which is weird. I have any, there are a couple of these guys I've never even spoken to. Have I told you this? Yeah, you did, but I didn't realize that you were going away for a weekend. Yeah, for a week, for a long weekend, four wow. day weekend. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, we get to meet each other as fifty eight year olds, fifty seven year olds. That uh, is going to be great. Sounds like a a great premise for a movie. It does. Know? It does. You should get your documentary camera out and come film it. <laughs> come shoot. Oh my it. god, that would be amazing. It would be crazy. It would be crazy. When you doing uh, that? Uh, the 18th of May. So 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st. Wow. That's yeah. great. And 35 be? years. And where is it going to be? Uh, we rented a house in uh, Marina Del Rey. Oh, it's here. Yeah, it's here. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all coming to LA. Great. I'm excited about that. But, uh, yeah, great documentary. Great guy. 
Uh, great, great actor, unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, musical actor, um, and was great in uh, in uh, the newsroom, which is just a killer show. Um, so thanks to uh, John Gallagher for joining us. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Sue, great seeing you. You too. By the way, next show, O'Shea Jackson Jr., our friend is coming back. So make sure you stick with us. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening to the Culture Pop Podcast.